Well, good morning and happy new year. Um, I'm Pastor Andrew, and I haven't seen many, any of you or many of you since, since last year, and it's good to be back together and to start a new year in worship together. And I'm just grateful that if you're a part of this church family or you're visiting with us, that you've decided to uh, make this a place where you can join in worship. Uh, we hope that this will be an encouraging morning for you all. Uh, and, and I hope that your holidays went well. I hope that you had a good time to rest and relax and spend time with friends and family. I hope that if there were ways in which you needed to be comforted during this time that you found that comfort and peace uh, that, that Christ can provide for you. And I hope that we were all well reminded of exactly who Jesus is and why we celebrate Christmas and why we are excited about the new year. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping that I'd like to go into before we jump into the sermon this morning. Uh, over the course of the January, we're going to be uh, in a short sermon series called Child of Promise, and it's going to be all about Isaac. A number of years ago, in fact, we we're halfway through our series on Abraham in March 2020. I remember that quite clearly. Um, and we've gone through the promise and the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now we're going to continue on in some of that story and see Isaac's role to play in that promise. During these four weeks that we have together in January, I also want to help us uh, get prepared for the next sermon series to come, and that's called When in Doubt. So the goal of this sermon series is to take some of our doubts and our questions, our struggles, our obstacles to faith and to be able to, uh, to vocalize those in a certain way, and to be able to wrestle with them together. And this is going to be material that I'm not going to sit down and try to come up with all the ways I think you may be struggling with doubt. I want you to supply some of these things that we can talk over. And so you, uh, if you as soon as you want to, if you go to our, our website, www.stonybrookfellowship.com, You'll find that on your main navigation bar in the top right corner, you will find uh, something that says, When in Doubt. And if you click on that, there will be a place where you can anonymously voice something that you might be struggling with in your faith, a doubt that you may have. I don't ask for a name or for an email. It's just give me uh, something that you are wrestling with or that someone you know is wrestling with. And then over the course of January, as these uh, anonymous doubts and questions come in, uh, then I'm going to compile those and then we're going to work through them together uh, after uh, starting in February, taking us all the way through to Easter. And the goal of doing this, there's, there's a few different goals that I'm hoping we can achieve. Number one, I want to let you all know that Stony Brook Fellowship is a place where if you have a doubt or a question or a skepticism, that this is a place where that is okay, where these doubts are okay. And so I want to give you an, an avenue, and you may not feel comfortable talking to me about it, but if, if you want to go on the website and, and, and share it anonymously, then do that. Because this is a place where we can ask questions, even things where we're really struggling to believe something to be true. I, I want our, our, our church to be a place where this can happen. And so when we're working through these things together on a Sunday morning, my goal will be to, to put a good argument forward, to be persuasive, but I don't want to dismiss anybody's doubts, to say that you shouldn't have this. We're going to, again, work or wrestle through this together. And I'm going to try to have this balance of being persuasive and also acknowledging that we all have these tensions in our life and our faith journey. So that is, is the goal. We can share these things and talk about them and learn about them together at Stony Brook Fellowship. 
The other thing that I really want to do through this is I'm hoping to engage other people in your life, in this community, that might be actively skeptical about the church, about Jesus, about the Bible. So if there is somebody in your workplace or in your family that you know has these doubts because they know you're a Christian and so they've brought some of these doubts forward to you, if that's true, then encourage them to go on our website. Have them fill in something. Again, anonymously, I won't know who it is. I'm not even worried about who it is. But it's a wonderful way that if there's someone who is underchurched, someone who is skeptical of the faith in your life, this might be something that engages them, gives them the opportunity to have a say, and then it may be a great way to invite them to church to see how we work through these things together. So I'd encourage you over the course of January as we study the life of Isaac to think about those things that are obstacles or doubts or struggles in your life. And you can, you can um, put those on the website. Or if you're someone who would prefer just to work through this one-on-one, come talk to me. My office door is always open, and I'm looking forward to working through this together with you starting in February. Just to whet your appetite. But we are going to be focusing on Isaac starting right now. And everyone loves a good love story, right? Who doesn't appreciate a good love story? Right? Fellas, put your hands down. (laughs) Just makes me wonder how many Hallmark movies some of your wives made you watch over the course of the holidays. I think there was a few, maybe more than a few, too many that were watched. But we, we tend to be drawn to love stories. And I look at my own life and And my wife, Karen, and I, we have our own love story. And if you look at it with just the bare facts, you could say, okay, two uh, Christian people went to Bible school, started dating, and got married. It seems like your pretty typical love story, right? I mean, there's quite a few stories like that. But ours was a little bit different uh, because in our story, I fell for Karen quite a bit sooner than she fell for me. And you're all like, that adds up, yeah. (laughs) And so I asked her out. And she said no, and that was too bad. So then a few months later, I was like, well, did she say like, like, mean like not now? And so then I went back for some clarification because I'm a glutton for punishment. And then her famous phrase was, no, no, not ever. No, not ever is what she said to me. A phrase and a story in which we had a lot of fun bringing up at our wedding a few different times Because eventually, right before uh, or during our third and final year at school, she eventually changed her mind. That's our love story. Many of you will have a love story, and one that is still being written. And Isaac and Rebecca have a love story of their own, one that as we read in Genesis 24, really focuses on God's role in their story together. So yes, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Genesis 24. That will be where we will focus together this morning. Uh, But some of the um, uh, main verses that I want to highlight will also be available on the screen. And in Isaac and Rebecca's story, I think we can call this a providential love story for reasons that will soon become clear, that God was working in his providence, in his sovereignty, to have everything happen according to his will and according to his plan. And Isaac had an important role to play because he was also tied into the promise and the covenant that God gave with his father Abraham many years before his birth and before this story took place. Abraham had been given this promise, but near the end of his life, there was still a loose end that needed to be tied on this covenant that God had made with him. You see, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, God promised Abraham this. 
He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then a few chapters later, God makes a formal covenant swearing upon his own holiness that he will uphold this promise to Abraham. He will be a great nation. But this promise looked improbable because Abraham and his wife Sarah were barren and unable to have children. And they got older and older and older to the point where they were well past childbearing age. And then there was this miraculous birth of Isaac that came after Sarah should no longer have been able to bear children. So the promise continued through Isaac. But the promise was again seemingly threatened when God asked Abraham to bring his one and only son Isaac to be sacrificed to the Lord. And there again, at that last moment, God relented on that request. And the promise was once again secure. And now the promise is threatened once again, not by the fact that Abraham doesn't have kids, but now that Isaac is not married and does not have any children of his own. And he is the one and only son who's able to carry this promise forward. So God still needs to come through on his promise to Abraham by um, creating a situation in which Isaac can have a wife and have offspring of his own. So with this in mind, near the end of his life, Abraham called in a trusted servant and gave him the task of finding a suitable wife for his son, Isaac. It was such an important task that he made his servant swear a solemn oath, and he swore this oath by placing his hand under his thigh. This was a maybe a bit of a common uh, occurrence in the ancient Near East that the story takes place. So we see another example at the end of Jacob's life where he makes Joseph do the same thing. And this was a very mm, intimate way to make an oath in, a, in an era where everyone wore robes. You're putting someone, your hand under someone's thigh was a very personal way to make a promise. I'm just very glad we invented the handshake. <laughs> Otherwise, agreeing to become your pastor would have been a little bit more awkward. <laughs> But this important oath was to find a wife for Isaac who was not from the land of Canaan, where Abraham and his family were currently living, but instead from Abraham's own people that he had left behind on his journey. The reason was that Abraham and his family were the only God-fearing people in the land. They were the only ones who worshipped the one true God. Everyone else that surrounded them were, were pagans. They did not believe the same thing. And so if the one true God was going to carry on his promise through Isaac, then it made complete sense that the wife Isaac should have should also be a believer and a follower of Yahweh. This was, in many ways, an ancient version of not wanting Isaac to be unequally yoked. Having marriage from God's own people continued to be common practice and even commanded by God later on when he gave them the law of the covenant. And so this is the goal, to find a suitable God-fearing wife for Isaac. And so Abraham sends his servant to the previous stop in Mesopotamia where he was before he came to Canaan. Because Abraham was living in a place after a long journey. If we go back to his story, we know that he left Ur of the Chaldeans where he grew up and he went north into a, a part of Mesopotamia called Haran and he settled there. And much of Abraham and his family that came with him settled there permanently. 
But God told Abraham to continue to go down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to the land of Canaan because this land was going to be part of his promise. God had told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he says, this great nation will also receive this land of Canaan, which Abraham lived in at the time, which eventually the children of Israel would conquer after their time in, uh, in Egypt and is still the place where the modern state of Israel is today. So there needs to be uh, a journey that is going to take place. And the servant had a long way to go. We can see it on this map. Oh, the map's already up there. Look at that. All the way from Beersheba, or in Canaan, all the way up the coast to the place called Nahor, which would have been around the area of Haran, where the rest of Abraham's family would have settled after he left them to move to Canaan. So this is the area in which the the wife must come from. But Isaac must not go because he and his new wife have to settle back in Canaan. Again, Abraham does not want his son to go back to where he used to live because the land is part of the promise. So his wife must be God-fearing, but they both must remain in Canaan. It's the only way. It's all according to God's plan. In all of this, Abraham is acting on faith that God is going before him to stay true to his promises. Abraham has seen God work in many different miraculous ways to make this covenant stay true and come true. And he continues to believe this for Isaac. And this is what he says in Genesis 24, verse 7, when he's talking to his servant. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. He will send an angel before you. Abraham knows and he is correct that God is a part of this. And in his providence, in his sovereignty and in his control and in his care for Abraham and his descendants, God is going to go ahead. He will make a way. He will make it possible. And he will guide his servant in the way that's necessary to find the right person to marry his son and to carry on the descendants that God has promised. An angel will go before you. And so this is a love story, but it is a providential love story because God is the main character. He is the one who is at work, staying true to his promises and caring for his people. And yet, these other minor characters, the people involved in this story, are still hard at work acting in faith, in obedience, and in prayer, as we will discover in greater detail. And so armed with all of these instructions and having sworn a solemn oath, this trusted servant of Abraham begins that long journey north to Mesopotamia, taking 10 camels loaded up with gifts for a potential bride. And after this long, arduous journey, because I don't think it would be easy to travel that far only with camels in tow, this servant finally finds himself at his destination, at the city of Nahor, right in that area of Haran, where Abraham's people reside. And he gets there in the cool of the evening. This is not an accident. He arrives there at that time on purpose because the cool of the evening is when all the young women from the town came down to draw the water from the well. So I guess before there was internet dating, you had to make sure you were there at the cool of the evening when all the eligible bachelorettes would come to draw water from the well. He's there at that time on purpose. Uh, this, this also reminds us of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4. 
it was common practice for the women to go in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening to draw water because the heat of the day was sometimes overbearing. And yet it was during the heat of the day that the Samaritan woman had to go to the, get water from the well because she was marginalized, pushed to the fringes of, of society because of her many failed marriages. And in the heat of the day, Jesus sees this woman who no one else appreciates to give the time of day to, and he lets her know first that he is the Messiah. But it is common for the cool of the morning and the evening to be this time, and the servant in his wisdom is there at the right time to see these women come down to the well. And he must be feeling more than a little bit overwhelmed with his task. He would have been fully aware of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. He would have been fully aware that this covenant needed to continue through Isaac and the person that he would find as a suitable wife. And he has now been entrusted by his master Abraham to be the person to carry this forward. So feeling the weight of the moment, possibly even feeling overwhelmed, the servant chooses to pray. And what a good choice that is. Here are his words, Genesis 24, verses 12 to 14. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this shall I know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So the servant understands that he doesn't want this to be up to him. He doesn't want it to be up to his own choice to be like, okay, that person looks like a suitable mate or spouse for Isaac. He he wants this to be God's choice, God's decision, God's leading and guidance. And so this prayer is a simple and profound prayer request. God, please lead me in the direction that I should go. And as we, the people of God, continue to live in God's providence today, we are also called to be people of prayer. To know and to live in God's providence requires prayer. If we want to know God's desires, God's leading, God's best in our life, then we also need to make sure we don't leave it all up to ourselves. We need to have the attitude and the action of the servant and to get on to our knees and to ask God, to request to him, even very specifically, God, please lead me. I, I know what I would like to do or, or I'm confused or I'm unsure, whatever the question may be. When we have these big decisions to make, we need to ensure that we make it in prayer. It could be a decision like, should I, should I move? Should I take a certain job? Should I get married? Should I start a family? What school should I put my kid into? All of these choices require prayer. When I was working on this sermon during the week, thinking about a time in my life when this was a true requirement, I I thought back to just over four years ago when we were uh, considering coming here to Steinbeck to be the pastor and pastor family at Stony Brook Fellowship. And, And we knew this was a big decision. And we knew it would affect our entire family. We would have to uproot from a community that we spent 10 years in, in Stonewall. All of our kids had been born there. Uh, We'd have to change schools and communities and churches and jobs. We knew it was a big deal. And we, we didn't want that decision just to be up to us. We wanted God's leading in the matter. And so that required constant prayer for him to move and to let us know which way he would like to go. 
But the servant in our story prays very specifically. He says, okay, I'm going to ask a young woman for water, and the young woman that I would like to uh, have be the one that would be suitable for Isaac will be the one that will also offer to give water to my camels. Like Gideon and his fleece, the servant is using a very specific prayer for God to answer, but I don't think the specificity is our takeaway here. I don't want you to get me wrong. I don't want you to, to, you know, young adults to go to Bible school and to be like, all right, who does God want me to marry? I'm going to sit down at the cafeteria table. I'm like, okay, God, the the young woman that that chews with her mouth shut and then cocks her head slightly to the left and smiles when other people laugh, you know, that that's the one for me. Okay, and you just stare at the girl you like and like do those things. No, I don't think that specificity is our takeaway here. Well, what is the lesson? Well, I think we need to realize that we are to ask God to make his will clear to us according to the priorities that he has already told us are important. And this is what the servant is doing. You see, looking for someone who will offer water to the camels is not some random event like a fleece just being put before God. You see, this servant can look at these young women and he can, he can tell if they're attractive or not and he can find out very quickly if they're available or not and he can ensure with a few questions if they're from Abraham's family or not. But what he can't tell is what type of person someone may be. And so he is looking for someone who is kind and who is generous. And so this request is, God, let me find someone who goes the extra mile who wants to share the water with the camels, someone who can reveal their heart in a very quick and specific way. He prays according to God's already established priorities, someone that would be generous or kind. And this is my favorite part of the story. It tells us that before the servant is done uttering the words of his prayer, he is still praying the prayer. Rebecca walks down and God immediately, immediately answers this prayer. Up walks Rebecca, and she checks all the boxes. The Bible says she was very attractive. She was a virgin who was eligible to be married. She was a a member of Abraham's family. And as we keep reading, we realize that she was Abraham's first cousin once removed. And I was like, I didn't realize that Rebecca and Isaac were Mennonites. (laughs) That's the low-hanging fruit in my humor today. It's like, You laugh, but you all know of somebody who's married to a pretty close relative. That's why it's funny. (laughs) But this was the point. It was more a common practice again at that time. Abraham wanted someone that was fairly close in relation, not just for genetic reasons, but mostly for worship reasons. These were the people of God. So this um, this was what Rebecca was. She qualified for this. But would she check the box of being a generous person who considers others? Would she answer the prayer of the servant? And he goes and he asks her for water to drink. She gladly gives it. And then without skipping a beat, she says, let me also water your camels. Let me give them enough water until they have drank their fill. And the servant can't believe it. I mean, he wasn't even finished speaking. And God came up and brought Rebecca right in front of him. And he just stares at her intently. That's all he can do. He is dumbfounded by the way that God has providentially moved in this situation. He has answered his prayer right in front of his eyes. So with no doubt left as to God's will, the servant approaches Rebecca. He lets her know who he is. He bestows upon her lavish gifts of jewelry, which are this precursor to a bridal price. 
basically signifying his intention of his master to to bring her back home to be a a bride for Isaac. He affirms her lineage, how close she is related to Abraham, and he asks to spend the night with her and her family. And at this point, he prays again. But instead of a prayer request, we see a prayer of thanksgiving in Genesis 24, verse 27. And the servant said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So the servant prayed, and he prayed specifically, and he made a request upon God. He was courageous enough, rightfully so, to go before the living God and say, please help me, please guide me. And then when God does, he's also rightfully humble to say thank you after the fact. He is thankful. And when God leads and answers prayers in his providence, we need to also remember to be thankful. To know and to live in God's providence requires thanksgiving. We ought not to just be people who ask, but when God answers, when we receive, when he moves in a way that we know is him, then we also ought to be people who say thank you. During my time as youth pastor, I led a weekly uh, senior youth Bible study. And for one of my years there, we kept track of not only all the prayer requests that we prayed for, but we also kept track of all the ways that God answered. And at the end of the school year, we were amazed. We were just amazed at all the ways that God had moved. You see, when we don't take time to consider it or to be thankful, we just get used to God doing these things. And we forget about what God has answered because another question or request has come up. And as we move through life, if we don't give ourselves the opportunity to be thankful, to really look at what and see what God has done, then we can miss how much he is doing for us. So if you're someone who journals in your own prayer life, don't just journal your requests. Journal the way God answers. Or if you're part of one of the small groups here, our fellowship groups or our discipleship groups, as you pray for and with one another, don't just record the requests. Record the way God answers these things. And I love, how encouraging is it that we have someone like Rael who can stand up today and say, you prayed for me and God answered that prayer. We can be thankful, but we can also be encouraged because we see God in his providence taking care of us, his people. The servant certainly had these feelings of thanksgiving. He was certainly continuing to believe and have it affirmed that this was God's will. And Rebecca must have felt much the same way. She ran home to tell her family about all that had happened. And the final chapter of our story begins. Now, it's actually Rebecca's brother Laban that takes the lead on making the last of these arrangements for marriage. And again, this is a love story, but it still is an arranged marriage. I mean, Isaac had no say. His dad had sent his servant away. He's like, I hope he picks well. (laughs) You know, and Rebecca doesn't have any say. It's all up to Laban and the men of that household to determine her fate. This is an arranged marriage. And so Laban is taking the, um, the lead in these agreements. And so Laban meets Abraham's servant, and he extends great hospitality to that man and to his camels. And hospitality was incredibly vital to those who were journeying in these areas, as parts of the world you didn't have a Motel 6 that you could go to at the end of the day. And so he would have, again, traveled a huge distance, and he would have needed a place to stay. And Laban fulfills this. He gives him the full deal. 
There's straw and fodder for the camels. There was water for the servant to wash his feet. And then there was this home-cooked meal brought before him. And you can just imagine how hungry he must have been after all of that traveling. But the servant does not eat any of that food until he has had the opportunity to tell the rest of the household of Rebekah exactly what has happened. And he does in great detail. You can read this story all over again in the words of the servant as he retells, God has made a promise to my, my, servant, my master Abraham, and now this is what he has done in bringing Rebekah to us, to our family as a bride for Isaac. Once the providential of work of God is revealed to all, it's not just the servant who believes God has been working in his providence, but Laban himself, after hearing the story, affirms what God has done. And we read his response in Genesis 24, verses 50 to 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. They give words of affirmation. They hear the story, and they too, as believers in the one true God, say, this thing is from the Lord. The Lord has spoken. This is God's work. He is the main character of this story. Take Rebekah and go. And God often uses other believers to help clarify to us what he is doing. And so to know and live in God's providence requires affirmation. And if I can bring this back to you again, four and a half years ago, as I was considering whether or not to answer the call to come to Stony Brook, if I were to do this only in a, of myself, I would have easily been blind. It was exciting for me. It was, it was an opportunity for me to become a lead pastor. I could, I could be encouraged by all the challenge of it or the opportunity of it and the excitement of it, and forget or lessen the impact they would have on my wife and my kids. And it was in praying together with Karen and with a few select other people in my life that God began to affirm to me that this wasn't just my longing, but his leading to bring me to this place. If it was just me, I could have gone for the wrong reasons and made the wrong decision. I needed affirmation from others to be convinced that this was God's leading in my life. And Karen was the main affirming voice where she said, I believe God is calling us to go. She wasn't following me to Steinbeck. She was following the Lord. We need this affirmation. And Laban and his family give that to the servant of Abraham. And so Rebekah agrees to go with Abraham's servant right away. And as she leaves, Laban gives another type of affirmation, but this one was unintentional. I think equally as powerful, but unintentional. As Rebecca is leaving, Laban gives this prayer for her in Genesis 24, verse 60. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Well, how is this an affirmation? Because we need to go back to Genesis 22 and look at the words that God himself used to Abraham after he passed the test of being willing to sacrifice Isaac. This is what God said in Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18. And the Lord said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies." 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So there is a phrase there that is the exact same words, the exact same promise. And Laban would not have known that. Laban wouldn't have known the exact way that that, that God had blessed and promised Abraham after he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. So in this way, two parties, unbeknownst to each other, receiving the exact same phrase and promise, I believe would have been an incredible affirmation to the servant who would have known the words that Abraham received and now hear them heard them prophetically said over Rebecca as well. Sometimes God works through people and through situations and words and phrases in a way that shows that he is the one behind all of this. Now, when I went and told you a bit about my love story with Karen, there was a, a, a detail that I left out. So I asked her out, not once but twice, and she said very clearly, no, not ever. But the problem was I couldn't get past the feelings that I had for her. And I didn't want to be a creep. So I was trying to be very good about this, right? So I prayed to God. I said, God, I feel this way and it's not leaving. So I said, please work in my heart and either take these feelings away or please work in her heart and change the way that she feels. And I prayed that prayer with those words almost every single day. And then on that day where she had changed her mind and she officially agreed to start dating me, we we went for a walk and tried to hash some of this out. And we came back to the front of her dorm And then we prayed together. (laughs) And then as we're praying, Karen said this to me. Well, she said this in her prayer. She said, God, thank you for working on my heart and thank you for working on Andrew's heart. I never, ever told her the way that I prayed every single day. I never told her those words. Those were my words alone. And in that moment, I was like, we're getting married. And then I, (laughs) I didn't tell her that right away. But church, it was crystal clear to me, crystal clear, God used those words, those phrases to say, this has been me all along. This has been me. That's a different type of affirmation. And Abraham's servant gets it here as well. And so Rebecca joins Abraham's servant. They travel all the way back to Canaan. When they arrive, Rebecca sees Isaac in the distance and she covers herself with the veil. The veil was a sign of betrothal. We see these details that are important because now Rebecca is invested and committed to this marriage, even though she has yet to meet her betrothed. Isaac is given the entire detailed story of how this came to be, why Rebecca is here, and he takes Rebecca to be his wife. And as the story concludes, we find two more important details that lead us to our final point. The first detail that we're given is that Isaac loved Rebecca. He loved her. And I, I think we can safely assume that Rebecca loved him as well. And, and this is, is truly, truly something to be celebrated because this was an arranged marriage. Rebecca didn't know Isaac. Isaac didn't know Rebecca. But God worked in such a way that he brought two people together who truly cared for each other and loved each other. And the second detail is that in this loving marriage now, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. You see, the story preceding this one in Genesis 23 was of the very recent death of Isaac's mother, Sarah. And he was still mourning her and grieving her, and God used Rebecca, sorry, yeah, Rebecca to come and to give comfort to Isaac. And so what we see by these two final details at the very end of the story is that God is working in the big picture. He has made a long-lasting eternal covenant with Abraham. 
And he is working to ensure that this eternal covenant will come true through Isaac and Rebekah being married and bearing children. He's working in the big picture. But even as he does so, he's showing deep personal care for Isaac and Rebekah. He's saying, I will ensure that this line continues to go, but you will also love one another. I will ensure that there are many offspring for this nation, my chosen people, but I will also bring you someone who will comfort you in your time of grief and mourning. That's the type of God that we serve. That's the type of God that we follow. I mean, God is sovereign. He is in control. He can use his providence in any way that he deems fit. Yet in his providence, God cares for his people. To know and live in the providence of God is to be cared for. That is a truth that we have to absolutely remind ourselves with today. And now the greatest way that we can receive, or the greatest care that we can receive from God is through the saving plan that he accomplished in Jesus Christ. He's saying, wait, pastor, Jesus is part of this story? Absolutely. You read closely enough, Jesus is part of every story in Scripture. Paul makes this clear to us in Galatians 3.16. And he says, Now promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. But it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, like, even as Rebecca and Isaac are, are coming together and are married and are carrying on all of these descendants and all of this offspring thousands and thousands of years before Christ, even more thousands of years from us here today, God was at work in his providence. He had in mind Jesus, who would be the fulfillment of this covenant. Jesus is the one true offspring. He is the one true Israel. He is the one who would bless the world through the covenant made with Abraham thousands of years before, and he came down to earth to die for your sins and to defeat death three days later so that your eternal destiny is cared for. God did all of that in his providence. And in all of God's plans and providence, we are always cared for because of what he accomplished in Jesus Christ, a plan that was put into place even during the faithful prayer of an obedient servant standing beside a well in the cool of the evening. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we start a new year. And I'm not sure what type of first week it's been for many of us. It could have been a great start. It could have been a false start. We could still feel like we're two weeks behind. But God, we know that you hold all the days of this year and the rest of our lives in your hand. I think it's a good and appropriate story to begin our new year, to recognize that in your providence, you choose to care for us. And that as we seek to know your will and to live in this providence, that we would do so prayerfully with thanksgiving, affirming one another as you lead us into the ways that you would have us go. God, may we be excited for what's next. And even amidst all the hardship and the trouble, may we lean in the fact that through your son Jesus, in your providence and your plan for us, that we have our eternal destiny secure. Amen.